today we are in the book of Haggai. So go ahead and start your process of finding it. If you are, are going to use one of the little Bibles we have in the seats in front of you there, you'll see the page numbers are listed. If you don't have a Bible, uh, first time you picked up that Bible uh, and you're like, wow, I don't have one of these, you can keep it. Uh, we want everyone to have one. If you've got 50 at home, this isn't designed for you to have another to keep in your car or something like that. But if you don't have your own Bible, please keep that. Today we're going to be in the book of Haggai. And why don't we pray that the Lord would minister to us through his word. Father, you tell us uh, in your word that if the Son of Man is lifted up, that all men will be drawn to him. And Lord, that is and has been our desire uh, this morning and hopefully every morning is that the name of Christ would be lifted up, Lord, that God would be magnified. And Lord, in doing that, we pray that, Lord, you would draw each of us to you. Lord, whether we've been in the Lord for a super long time or we're just starting to figure these things out, Lord, we would all desire to come and be nearer to you as a result of our time this morning. So bless your word. Remarkable for us to consider something written 2,500 years ago could be so pertinent to our lives today. And Lord, every time we come, it's a testimony that your word is alive. Lord, that it is active. It is at work. It's able to go down deep into the deep places of who we are and to, like a scalpel, kind of navigate in and cut out what needs to be cut out and expose what needs to be exposed and ultimately mend what needs to be mended. So we love you, Lord. Thank you for the gift of one another, of your holy word, your holy spirit. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Haggai, as I mentioned here. This will be our fourth and our final study in this tiny little book, only a couple of chapters. I'm going to guess probably 40 verses uh, in the whole book. So not a very large book, but it is an important book, I think, and I, I feel that the Lord's been using it to minister to me. Hopefully you came along on that ride with me, but the Lord's been ministering to my heart in our study of this particular book. And you remember that this is a book that was designed to encourage that there was a group of men and a group of women, that they were in Jerusalem, that they were doing the important work that God called them to do. This is a group of people that made some key sacrifices in their lives in order to be able to do that work that God was calling them to do. And as the process of life went along, they became discouraged in that particular work. And so you remember that they were exiles in a foreign land. This book is written after the exile, so we call it post-exilic. But they were exiles in a foreign land. And when a new king came in, he gave them the opportunity, the men and the women, the young people, the opportunity, any of them that wanted to, could go back to Jerusalem, kind of the land of their fathers and their grandfathers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers and so on. And they could work on rebuilding Jerusalem and at the very least, being in the land that God had promised to their people. They would still be uh, subjects of a foreign king, but they'd be able to do so from the land that God had given them. And we learned how in the book of Ezra, Cyrus granted them permission to return. Now, as I said, you'd expect the million or so of them, they would all rush to get back. 
But in reality, only about 50,000 50, people took up the cause to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple and all of that. that was, that's roughly somewhere around 2 to 5 to 6% of the people. They went back to the land. And they got to work, as we saw. The work wasn't as, uh, as good as they might have hoped. They really poured themselves out into it, and then they looked at the finished product, or what was becoming the finished product, and it was kind of crummy <laughs> in their eyes, comparatively speaking. And they were thinking, what are, why are you even bothering? We're never going to be able to kind of match up to those that have come before us. And as we've said, they got distracted in the process. They got involved with other things. They, the, the work of God was kind of put on the back burner, not forever, but just for today. And today became tomorrow, and tomorrow became a week, and a week became a month, and it, pretty soon a decade and a half had gone by. And there was God's work sitting there, while these folks were distracted with other things, not necessarily bad things, just other things. Houses and cars and baseball games and activities and the myriad of other things that come up in our lives, right? Are you with me? That's why this is applicable to us, because that's what happens in our lives. It's not like we're walking away from God. We're just sort of drifting with the current, and we become preoccupied with other things. And it was that into which God sent this prophet, Haggai, to speak. And so as I said, this is our fourth study in the book of Haggai. If you've been keeping track, the first three, these are the titles. When the fire of God has begun to wane was our first study. The second was what to do when God begins to stir again. And the third one we did last week or two weeks ago, I forget, was uh, what when discouragement sets in. And I bring it up, I remind you of this because I think uh, it tells the story of the first ch opening, the, the first chapter and first, or second, first half of the second chapter. Because the people come back to the land, ready to work, they get sidetracked. When they're challenged by the prophet, they renew their efforts, that's good, right? And then before long, they become discouraged by those efforts, wondering again if their efforts were even worth it, beginning to compare themselves with others, better Christians, better missionaries, better people, better churches, better, everyone's better than we are, why bother, why continue in these things? And many of them were ready to give up, and again, once more, this is why God sends Haggai, to bring them a word of encouragement. And that word of encouragement is just quite simple. Look, don't look around. Don't worry about what other people are doing or how they're doing it or the quality of what they're doing. You do what I have called you to do. Do it with all of your heart, and I'll do what I do, is what God says. I will bless your efforts. Haggai 2.4 says this, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And as we saw last week, God let him, them in on a little secret of his, and that was that the glory of this building that they were constructing and that they were so discouraged about would one day surpass the glory of the temple that Solomon himself had laid the uh, foundation for and had built. 
If you look at verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, The latter glory of this house, the one you're building, will be greater than the former glory of the one Solomon built. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. He goes on even to say that the very Messiah himself, you remember how the King James word said, as the desire of all nations, that the very Messiah himself would grace the courtyards of the house of God that they were building. And so if that's the truth, no wonder the glory of this house will far surpass the glory of the former. Now we come today to verse 10. And as you see, verse 10 begins, and once again we're told that the word of the Lord came to this man, Haggai. We're told the date as well. Notice it says, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Now Haggai's first prophecy was on the first day of the sixth month. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. We began our study of this book with that. First day uh, of the month, of the sixth month. This one here, as we see, is going to come on the 24th day of the ninth month. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, you see Haggai's second prophecy came in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month. And then again, this one here, the 24th day of the ninth month. If you just scan down just for a second to verse 20, you'll see he'll get a fourth vision, which will also be on the 24th day of the ninth month. And so we began on the first day of the sixth month. We end here on the 24th day of the ninth month. God was sure active during this short interval of less than four months. If you add up all of those days, it comes up to 114 days. There was a stirring transformation in the heart of God's people, and it took less than 115 days for God to accomplish. You know, I wonder what might God be able to accomplish in each one of our individual lives and in our lives as a, or our life as a congregation in 115 days. Wouldn't it be exciting to find out as people commit themselves to the Lord what the Lord can do in such a short period of time? And so we see here, as we come to the third of these uh, words of the Lord, these prophecies, we start in verse 10. I'm going to read from verse 10 down to verse 18. It says, Now on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and he touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Verse 13, then Haggai said, well, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, do they become unclean? And the priest answered and said, basically, yes, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, and so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, and yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. 
And so, verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since that day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is there seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you, he says. I think this is very interesting, this passage. I don't know if that intrigues you, but it, it does me. So let's take some time to consider. So Haggai begins, he finds the priest, and he presents to them a couple of scenarios. Now, these, this would have been very familiar to the priest. This is kind of one of their jobs, was to answer these kind of questions for the congregation of the people. Remember, priests were, were supposed to be scattered all throughout Israel so that the people could have access to them. This is the sort of thing that they would have been familiar with. Somebody coming to them and saying, according to the law, you know, what's the right answer in this particular circumstance? And so, speaking for the Lord, Haggai, he says, ask the priest, according to the law, according to the Bible, we might say, if someone carries holy meat, that was part of an offering. Remember, there were all kinds of offerings that the Jews celebrated, uh, all kinds of uh, acts of worship. Some of the offerings were completely consumed on the fire, but there were other, other types of offerings. I'm thinking of the fellowship offering or the peace offering, where they would bring the offering, the animal, the meat, and then a portion of it would be given back to them. Some of it would be consumed in the fire, some the priests would keep for themselves, and then a portion would be given back to them, and they would share that with their family. That's what it's referring to. And so if a person, uh, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food, does that food then become holy because it has touched the holy meat? Now, the quick resounding answer, look at the end of verse 12. The priests are like, oh, that's a hard one. Let me think about that one. Let me search. They already know the answer. This is an easy one. And the answer is no. Everything else doesn't become holy as a result uh, because it touched holy meat. Haggai asks a second question, verse 13. He says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And he goes on and he says, yes, yes, it does. It does become unclean. And so here, if something holy touches something unholy, does the unholy thing become holy? Answer? No. Thank you. I, I can't believe you're with me. All right. I, I'm lost here. And if something unholy, he uses the word unclean, but same idea, touches something uh, do, like stew or wine, do any of those become unclean? Yes. Good. All right. I got lost a bit, but I'm glad you're with me. And so, as I said, these are the types of things that the priests would have been used to answering. And so the takeaway is this. Holiness is not contagious, but impurity is. And so you think, you know, our whole COVID thing we had fun with the uh, last couple of years. A sick person doesn't catch health, right? We just got to get you around more healthy people and you'll be good to go. No, a sick person doesn't catch health. Healthy people catch sickness. So Haggai's point then is this, holiness, and again, remember holiness isn't like things glow or something with little you know, rings around the top here. Holiness is this idea of being set apart unto something. And so holiness can't be passed on, but corruption can, uncleanness can, pollution can. And so here's a quick little simple takeaway. If you hang around sin, 
don't be surprised if you begin to see it taking its effect on you, and don't be surprised if you begin to see it's having an impact on you. The Apostle Paul talked about this in the book of 1 Corinthians. He said this phrase, he quotes actually a popular phrase. He said, don't, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. Good morals, it says in some other versions. And then he adds there, and don't be misled by this, or don't be deceived by this. We might say, look, don't fool yourself into thinking, well, I'll be fine. Because what the Apostle Paul knew and wrote was that proximity to uncleanness will have its impact on you. And so, whether we're talking about the folks we hang out with, and by that what I mean is, I'm referring to those that you really do life with, because you've got to interact with people, you've got to come in contact with people, you're going to work with certain people. What I'm referring to is those that you really choose to spend your time with, invest your life in, they invest their life into your life. Whether we're talking about them or we're talking about the influences that we allow to come into our lives, maybe from what we watch or what we read or what we're listening to, we need to, Paul's point is, take great care of who or what those things are because inevitably they will have their impact on us. That's kind of this practical takeaway from this. But if we go back to Haggai, there's a specific point that he is getting to by asking these priests these questions. And remember, it was God who put this word within him. And so God wants Haggai to make a point here. And so he makes application in verse 14. Notice, he says, So it is with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. Remember the context, holiness, uncleanness. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. There was an area of their lives that was not set apart unto God. It was not holy unto God. There was an area of their lives that was unclean. And what Haggai is saying here is the result was that it was impacting every other area of their lives. And so these guys were living in the Holy Land, but that didn't mean that all of their efforts were holy, right? That's the point that uh, Haggai is getting to. And as has already been established, the priority of their hearts was wrong. And because it was, nothing they did was truly set apart unto the Lord or holy unto the Lord. It was all tainted with the uncleanness of their neglect toward the house of God. And because it was, as we'll go on to see, God couldn't bless his people with until the uncleanness itself was dealt with. Are you with me? And so notice what Haggai goes on to say. He, he says it here in verse 15. And so he says, now then consider, because remember, where we are now in the book, the people had started the work of God, drifted away from the work of God, been challenged by Haggai to get back on task with the work of God. There was a little bit of discouragement in that process, but they got back on task with the work of God. And now God is saying to them, now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple, or before you started again rebuilding the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? And he goes on and he answers the question. Here's how you fared. When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, 
there were but 20. Compare this, if you will, go back to chapter 1, look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Very similar material. Chapter 1, verse 5, is before they started rebuilding again. He says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, and you harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And the one who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Do you see the scenario there? You're hoping to get 20 measures, you only get 10. You're hoping to get 50, you only get uh, the 20. Because the, the story here, or the, what's going on here, is the people had been so focused on themselves, so focused on their own paneled houses, remember verse 4 of chapter 1 said that, and because living in luxury like that, it cost them so much money, what they were doing was pouring themselves into their work to earn that type of money in order to be able to afford those particular things. And yet, as verse 6 points out, they sowed much, but they harvested little. They earned wages, but only to put them into a bag with holes. In short, I've said this before, God was not blessing their ways, and the reason why he wasn't is because God cannot bless selfishness. It's antithetical to who he is. I, I've used the silly scenario, if we decided we were going to go rob a bank, we wouldn't you know, join in hands outside of the bank and pray for God's blessing on our efforts. That doesn't make any sense. God can't do that. He can't bless such a thing. And so because God cannot bless selfishness, these people were not experiencing the blessing of God. And so they would work really hard, and then they'd be like, man, where'd all my money go? And here I worked real hard, got all those extra hours, and the washing machine broke again. And I got to put it in the car again. And next thing you know, zero in the bank account again. That's what they were experiencing. And so he says here in chapter 2, remember, 114 days after he initially spoke to the people, he says, now then consider from this day onward how things work out, so to speak, with your finances. He asks, he says, before you got to work again on the temple of the Lord, this is verse 15, before you got to work again on the temple of the Lord, how did things fare? Answer, not too well. Again, they came looking for 20 measures of flour or grain or something like that, and they only found 10. goes on in verse 16, they came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, and they only found 20. Just like in chapter 1, God's hand was not on them. Now, speaking on the behalf of the Lord, Haggai is going to give a third example. Look at verse 17. He says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, and yet you did not turn. We don't like to add to the Bible, but I'm going to add here for our purposes. You did not turn back to the Lord. Well, that doesn't sound very nice, does it? Isn't that kind of mean of God? That he would treat his people that way? That he would strike their products with blight and mildew and hail and all these kinds of things? Obviously, I'm kidding. God wasn't being mean at all toward his people. He did that for their good. You can see that there where you, you see his purpose. He said, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail. What's his purpose in doing that? What they didn't do. Yet you did not turn back to me. That's why he did it. So it's not mean at all that God would do what he did. He was trying to bring them back to him. 
And that was going to be, in his mind here, that was going to be the thing that brought them back. And yet, amazingly, they didn't come back. And so despite year after year after year of struggle, the people still didn't return to him. And so God allowed, and even some instances, he caused the struggle so that they would. I've said this before, but it begs repeating. If you're wondering, and you know, I, I kind of struggle with this message a little because there's a, there's a wing of Christianity, we'll call it that, that God wants you to be rich and have a Cadillac and or whatever car you like and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's not where I'm going. But at the same time, because I'm, I'm leery of that, I don't want to avoid what I think God is telling us in his word. All right, so you're with me? I'm not one of those guys kind of thing. All right, I have a 15-year-old truck, and pretty soon the, there's not going to be any more doors because it's rusting away. All right, but God provides, and I like it, uh, and it works for me. So anyhow, that being said, if you are wondering why things don't seem to be sort of working out in your life, work-wise, finance-wise, maybe your ministry effort-wise, all those kinds of things, it very well may be that God has allowed that struggle to come your way to shake you a bit from distraction. Now let me add this caveat. Difficulties in our lives aren't always indicators that God is trying to get our attention about some other matter. All right? It's very important that we understand it. It's not always an indicator of that. But according to this passage, sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. So sometimes difficulties come in our lives because we live in a fallen world, right? Sometimes difficulties come in our lives because the enemy is putting us under attack. For instance, think of the book of Job. And then other times difficulties come in our lives because God's trying to get our attention. And that's what the scenario is here. And so if you look at your life and you're like, man, Every, I just feel like I'm a tread on this treadmill thing, you know, with the gerbil, you know, just, what's it called, a wheel, a hamster wheel. I feel like I'm on that wheel, just running and going nowhere. At the very least, you should pull back and ask the question, Lord, are you trying to get my attention? And the Lord might say, you're doing great. Just keep it up. Or he might say, yeah, I have been trying to get your attention, and so on. And so here, on the backside of them making the decision, God, we're going to walk with you. On the backside of that, of the Lord having gotten their attention, he says now this to them. He says, put me to the test and see if things aren't different now that you have responded to my leading. Now, his actual words, which are important, is verse 18 and following. He says, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Remember that word consider? It means set your heart upon. Uh, where is your path taking you? Consider. I think it's used seven times, eight times maybe in the entire book. Twice here he says to them, consider. He says, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the wine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they have yielded nothing but... From this day on, I will bless you, he says. That's the test that I was speaking of a little bit earlier. They were, to, they were to test God. They were to look to their state before they began to put the work of God first and then compare that with their state after they began to put God's work first. And then by comparing the two, they would see 
that they had before nothing but trouble, frustration, and disappointment when they put themselves first. And then after that they were experiencing peace and fulfillment and blessing as they wholeheartedly gave themselves to God. God is boldly promising that his blessing to his people will come now that they have their priorities in proper order. And he says to them, mark this date. Six months from now, a year from now, I want you to look back on this date and I want you to ask yourself whether or not God was a God of his word. Is what he tells them. Put me to the test in these matters. And so we have to ask ourselves as we're applying this to our lives, how are our priorities or your priorities? Would you truly be able to say the Lord is number one in my life? Are you seeking him and his kingdom first? Or would you honestly say, you know what, the Lord does get sort of my remnants of my efforts. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things. And the context, people worry about what they're going to eat, where they're going to live, what they're going to wear. He says, seek me first and my kingdom and all these other things will be added, will be taken care of unto you. And so I, I just encourage you with this. Allow those words to challenge you. Allow them to minister to your heart, maybe Consider what's the path that you've been on. Where is it taking you? Is that really where you want to go? And if the Lord convicts about a certain area, give it to him. And I think what he said to them is what he says to us. Test me in this and see if I wasn't faithful to my word. Now, there's a fourth and final word of the Lord that comes to Haggai, and we'll, we'll transition to that now. It's going to start in verse 20. God gave Haggai four prophecies. This will be the fourth and final. Verse 20 says this, Now the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, excuse me, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Once again, you see the date, same as the, the previous prophecy. This time, however, the word is specifically for one individual. Before it was, you know, this is a word for Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people or this is a word for the people. This one here is specifically for Zerubbabel. And I'll remind you, Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. If the children of Israel were not um, subjects to a foreign king, Zerubbabel would have been the king of Israel. He was a descendant of the line of David, uh, and his grandfather or great-grandfather, one or the other, was the last king uh, of Judah before they were taken off into exile. But they are subjects to another land, and so he is the governor of the land there of Judah, of Jerusalem. And God's instructions to Haggai were to go and find him and speak a message specifically to him. There's three or four messages. The first one is in verse 21. He says, Zerubbabel, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. The second one, a little bit further down in verse 22, Zerubbabel, I'm about to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. 
And then the third one, toward the end of that verse, verse 23 or 2 or so, he says, Zerubbabel, I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And all of those things that God is about to do, they're big things, would you agree? Yes, overthrow all these other nations and so on. All of those things that he was about to accomplish, he goes on to say in verse 23, and Zerubbabel, I'm going to do those things through you. I'm going to accomplish each of those things under your leadership. Now, earlier in the book, God sent Haggai to address the people's discouragement. Remember, that I think that was an important chapter for many of us in this room to hear, that sometimes get discouraged that we're not further along in where we hoped we might be when we really purposed ourselves towards something. And so earlier in the book, he addressed the people's discouragement regarding their efforts. That was chapter three, chapter two, excuse me, verse three. And you look there, he says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? This phrase, is it not as nothing in your eyes? That's why they were so discouraged. Here now, not addressing all of the people, but addressing Zerubbabel, he addresses Zerubbabel's discouragement because the people were discouraged by the work they were doing and said, it's as nothing. But Zerubbabel was looking at himself and saying, it is as nothing. He didn't feel like he measured up. He didn't feel like he could accomplish what it was that God was having him to accomplish. And Zerubbabel himself was discouraged. And God, in his kindness, sends a word to this governor of the people not to be discouraged. Because the people said, look at our temple. It's a piece of junk. Why are we doing this? And you remember the word that came? Yeah, it it is kind of junky, the Lord said. He said, but you're not going to believe what's going to happen in this place. The glory of this place is far going to surpass the glory that ever came before. And by the way, the Messiah himself is going to come to this place and grace it with his presence. And that was a word of encouragement to them. Here's Zerubbabel. He needs to be the leader of this people. And I think we can read safely between the lines where he's saying, I can't lead these people and all these other nations that are around me. And the Lord encourages him. And he says, I'm going to shake the nations that are around you. And all those other things that I mentioned there that we we just read. And he says, and I'm going to do it through you, Zerubbabel. God says to Haggai, Haggai, I have a very important message for you to deliver to Zerubbabel. I want you to go to him. I want you to encourage him that despite the fact that he considers himself powerless in the context of the nations that I'm, I want you to tell him I am about to shake those nations. And I want to make sure he understands that I'm going to raise him up to do it. Specifically, he says, look at verse 23, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring because I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Now, the signet ring may not mean a lot to us, But the signet ring was the token of royal authority. The person who wore that ring and exercised that ring. And what I mean by that is they would take that ring. It would have the seal of the particular king kind of uh, like raised on it. And then they would kind of put it down. Can you see me? They would kind of put the ring down into hot wax. And then it would leave that seal or that signet. It was the mark of the king and the king's authority. It was comparable to a crown 
or a scepter. Whoever wore that ring, that was the one that was in charge. He says to him, and Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. His point is, Zerubbabel, I, I know you see yourself as nothing in your own eyes, but his point was that he was going to take this small town governor and establish him as the ruler, not, of just, not just of Israel, but of all the kingdoms that the Lord was about to shake. And so again, the people thought their measly attempts to build a house would come to nothing. And God informed them that the day was coming when the Messiah himself would grace that presence. Now the word is coming to Zerubbabel, who was struggling with who he is and the task that he was called to complete. And the Lord tells him, the day is coming when you will not only rule over and reign over Israel where there's 50-some thousand people here, but the opportunity is going to come. You're going to rule over the nations. Now, scholars differ as to exactly what the understanding of this prediction is. Some believe that it speaks of a future role that this actual man, Zerubbabel, will hold in God's millennial kingdom. Remember, the millennial kingdom is the 1,000-year reign of Christ here upon the earth. And so scholars, some scholars believe that this speaks of, in that kingdom, this man, Zerubbabel, having a specific role in which he will rule, sort of under-rule, or rule under the work of Christ— we know this, that the book of Revelation speaks of the followers of Christ ruling and reigning with him, you and I, those of us that are believers here, during his 1,000-year reign on the earth. And so the understanding then of this is that Zerubbabel will have a unique role in that kingdom ruling and reigning with Christ. That's one understanding. An alternative understanding is that Zerubbabel here, he serves as a type of the Messiah or as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who will rule and reign over all of the kingdoms of the earth. I think with my take on it, and you can form your own there as you study it yourself, my take on it is, as with so many prophecies that are still yet future, that a combination of both of those is likely what will be realized. But regardless, the point is this, Zerubbabel, it may not look like it now, but I have a great plan. I have great plans for you and your kingdom. So Zerubbabel, don't be discouraged. And he says to Zerubbabel the same message that he said to the people a little while ago that we studied. He says, you do what you're called to do, and I'll do what I have determined I will do. And that's an important thing, isn't it? As we look at sort of those tasks that are before us and what God might be calling us to do, and I think a lot of us here, as I talk with you, we take very seriously. You may recall that study that we did in the book of Acts where it talked about the believers because of persecution were scattered all about. And I pointed out to you how that there's a few different words in the Greek for the word scattered. And some of it just mean like, I'll just throw it wherever it goes, it goes. But then there was another Greek word that was used in that context. And that particular uh, Greek word that is translated scattered refers to very carefully placed, like a farmer doesn't just throw seed out there, but he or she, they kind of form the lines uh, of where the field is going to run. They very purposely scatter the seed. That's the word that is used. And so persecution caused them to go all over the place, but from God's perspective, they were very purposefully planted in a particular place. And a lot of us here, we have that belief. We have that mindset. I know you well enough. We live that particular way. I work where I work because God sent me there. 
I live where I live because God sent me there. I'm in the community that I am because God sent me there. All right, Lord, here I am. What do you want to do with me? And how do you want to use me in the lives of other people? And so the, the context, I'll bring the connection here. This point is this. Sometimes we look at our context and we think this is overwhelming. There's tens of thousands of people at this school that I go to or tens of thousands of people in this community that I live or I'm the only Christian in my entire extended family. How am I going to reach these people? How am I going to accomplish what it is you want me to accomplish? Well, you're becoming discouraged. Don't be is the message of the book of Haggai. You do what I've called you to do, God says, and I'll do what I do. And so work. Be strong, don't be discouraged, and work. And I will do what I do. I will bless you. That's what the Lord is saying. And that, I would say, is a timeless message, right? Even though this is a 2,500-year-old book, that's a timeless message that speaks to us individually and collectively as a body of believers. And my prayer has been that God has been ministering to your heart through it. And with that, we bring to an end another book of the Bible. <laughs> you didn't enjoy No clapping from over there? If you've never been with us, it's a tradition. We're not weird. All right, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, I, I know I've, I've, I say this a lot. I pray this a lot that... Uh, there have been generations and generations and generations of believers. There are even some today that do not have access to your word as we have access to your word. And Lord, we do believe that these are the very words of God designed to bring light and life into each one of our lives. And so we do consider it a privilege to be able to sit under it. And Lord, uh, I think you've blessed this study together. I just heard a lot of people commenting on things that God was ministering to them through the study of the book of Haggai, and we're grateful for that. And Lord, we desire to be the soil where the seed sinks down deep and it bears much fruit. And Lord, that's only something you can do. We can do our very best but then it's out of our hands at a certain point. And so, Lord, as we commit ourselves to the things that you've been speaking to us, as we challenge ourselves to consider sort of the direction that the path of our lives is on, as we make some changes in our lives, despite big change seeming like it's not happening quickly enough or certainly is not going to measure up to someone else, Lord, as we do all of those things, that we commit ourselves afresh today and we want to do that again tomorrow and the day after that to what it is you've been speaking to us. And we ask and we pray Lord, that you would bring your blessing as you promised to do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.